Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Let's, let's talk about what we're going to talk about today. Um, if we could, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 20 is a little bit of a, a rewind again. What I want to do is, is back up and kind of get a running start. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 20 started with that phrase um, where Jesus is talking about the Pharisees, and he says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, and of course, last week we talked about these six test cases or examples of a deeper righteousness, not just on the surface level, but anger all of a sudden more than just murder and, and lust more than just adultery and, and moving down uh, the line through those six things. It ends with the phrase uh, talking about love, you therefore must be perfect in verse 48 as your heavenly father is perfect. What I want to do in, in kind of backing that up is is recognize that we're still in that context of unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees. He's going to now in chapter 6 use three examples, um, not of a heart righteousness, but of common practices that are common religious expressions in the ancient world. And they actually, it's interesting when you study ancient religions, these three things have a lot of commonalities with other religions. In fact, the five pillars of Islam include these three things and then have two additional ones. Um, so they were common religious practices, giving to the poor, uh, praying, and fasting. And so, uh, you know, for the, not only this audience, but also the audience at large, um, these would be familiar acts of righteousness, if you will. Um, but Jesus, again, goes to the heart and says, so tell me, why do you do these three things? And that's what I love about Jesus is over and over again, it's, it's getting to our heart motivations. Um, and so kind of bullet point number one there is self-motivated acts of righteousness. And you can almost contrast that, right, with um, maybe selfless motivated acts of righteousness. Um, if you need some pins, I'll scoot that your direction. Um, I, was re- I was thinking about this, honestly, a little bit um, mid-afternoon today and was reminded by someone of that text in Luke chapter 18, uh, verses 9 through 14, where the Pharisee and the, uh, and, uh, the tax collector are praying. And it's, you know, parabolic, but Jesus says, um, you know, in, in one instance, I, I fast, I pray, I thank God that I'm not like this tax collector, and the tax collector beats his chest and says, woe is me, as I'm a sinner. And you actually have in that text, Luke 18, you have some of these three characteristics in it as well. Um, in fact, I'm going to turn there because I'm missing one little element of it that I thought was interesting. Um, so it's Luke 18, 9 is where that starts out. Um, so he told this parable to some who, here's what I was forgetting, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and then treated others with contempt. And so, I, you know, as I'm reading that again, I'm putting that parallel together. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees. And then the Pharisee stands by himself, almost as if it's like set himself aside from everyone else, notice me. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. You could almost put this prayer like against the Lord's Prayer, couldn't you? Like, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. This one almost starts like, our Father, hallowed be my name. <laughs> it's kind of how, how it starts out. Um, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this here tax collector. Um, I add the, this here tax collector because it sounds like Missouri. Um, I fast twice a week. In fact, we're going to discover that the Pharisees traditionally did fast twice a week, which is quite often um, for them to fast. And, and they often fasted on market day, 
because it was a public day and they would be out with the crowds and it sets them apart. And so we have that dynamic that plays out. Um, but fasting twice a week is significant. I give uh, tithes of all I get, so we have giving here. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful on me, a sinner. So we have prayer mentioned here just by the nature of what they're doing. We have fasting mentioned here, and we have giving. We have those three elements mentioned in this text. So the idea of acts of righteousness um, being something that was just a common everyday expression of our faith or of religious duty was, was ubiquitous. It was everywhere. And so we've seen six examples of Jesus going into the heart of common areas, anger, lust, loving your enemies, those types of things. And I think this extends now into kind of the out of the personal spectrum into the religious spectrum. So that the acts of righteousness. And so we're going we're gonna to ask the question about motivations and rewards. So here's a question uh, for us today, and, and we've touched on it already. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16 is sometimes mentioned as being an apparent contradiction, although I think the tension is intentional. Matthew 5, 16 says this, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works. We could say acts of righteousness. Um, I, I think it's a broader category than just these three. And they may give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so some turn to this where Jesus says, Beware of practicing your acts of righteousness, chapter 6, verse 1, before other people in order to be seen by them. And Obviously, when we look at Jesus, we go, well, he knows what he's doing. He's not contradicting himself. And I think Matthew, even as he's writing this down, he knows that tension's there in the text. And it still comes back to this theme. It's what is your motivation? Right. What is your heart? Um, is so, it for me or is it for God? Yeah, we're going to wrestle with that today because honestly, one of the questions I've had at, as a senior minister, honestly, in the church, we did a capital campaign. And the person who did our capital campaign as a, as a fundraising, and you all have done this here, um, as an individual who was coaching us said, man, as a leader, you need to tell publicly to the church as an individual what you're giving. And this text is one of those that kind of made me go, I'm not comfortable with that. And yet there's a dynamic that says if my motivation is pure and I'm trying to inspire other people to give, we could also go to the Old Testament where David gives, and quite frankly, David gives a pretty detailed list of what he gives in effort to build the temple. And, and I know we're New Testament Christians, but I would go, well, God honors that same heart in David. I'm assuming that God would honor a similar heart today. So there's some tension that's there, even when it comes to Scripture, um, when it comes to the ability to do things either secretively or publicly. So I want to wrestle with those two things today, and, and we can have a dialogue. And for those who are listening in, the Franks who are sick, um, you know, maybe we can have this conversation when we get back as well. Um, but that, that's the tension that I want to, to rest into. Any, any thoughts about that as we start diving in? We're going to walk through the three. Yeah, I, you know, the, it's funny, but until we had that capital campaign, I had not had to wrestle with it because I'd always, these three things have, had always been individualistic. And then as a senior minister or, you know, sometimes as a leader, you know, let's say even a preaching, a sermon illustration, can you talk about the fact that your family tithes or gives? 
Because at some point, is that not, you know, going against this? Or um, praying, you know, at what level? And Jesus prayed in public. He also prayed in private. Um, and so we want to take these into context and go, okay, what's the heart of this? And I don't want to make loopholes because that sounds very pharisaical. Um, but ultimately what I want to do is get us into our heart and go, I think more than anything, Jesus wants our heart. And there's danger when these things become public. And so we better be careful. That, that warning sign to me is significant. It is dangerous to do these three things in public because they, especially in this ancient world, they can self-promote more than God promote. Mm-hmm. Um, I find it interesting that these six things, you know, how you deal with your anger, um, forgiveness, even keeping your word, those types of things, those good works mm-hmm. can bring God glory. Loving your enemies can bring God glory. These three things can as well, but publicly they're more likely to give you glory. I find that really intriguing. Um, and it's kind of like the God, God doesn't need you to pray. You need to pray. God doesn't need you to give alms to the poor. You need to give alms. To, all, your heart needs to give you know, to the poor. Um, God doesn't need you to fast. There's something about fasting that we need. And I, and I find that paradox interesting that the Pharisees, the hypocrites in this text are using the three things that are really more for our heart to self-promote. And so I have to ask that question about myself. Is that something that's possible for us to do as well? Well, you know, I never thought about it as the tension between those two things. Yeah. I mean, now that you say that, yeah, I can see how that is there, but... yeah. But I think it comes back to, you know, who are you really promoting? Because, yeah. you know, we've known people that have been very generous yeah. to help yeah. with whatever. Yeah. You know, whether it's a capital campaign, kids going to camp, mm-hmm. or or just whatever. <clears throat> but, you know, you, you can pretty easily tell if they're doing mm-hmm. it for, them, for themselves. Yeah. And I grew up in a church where there were plaques on a lot of things, right? So this pew was donated by this. And again, I go, I can't judge the heart of it, but there's sometimes I can question it. You know, like, are we given these things so that people know who we are? And our name is remembered in, you know, some sort of perpetual remembrance. And is that necessarily bad? I don't know. It's necessarily, like, God's going to judge the heart. But sometimes we've played into it even in church culture, not necessarily here, mm-hmm. but as I look out at the church and some of my own church experiences, I go, ah. And I'm actually thankful. That's part of the reason why you'll hear Mark talk, and I'm sure this is heartbeat of elders and other leaders. I'm an observer, and honestly, part of the reason why we attend here, when we go out and serve in the community, um, not that it's a sin or wrong, I can't judge the heart of other people, but we'll just go out and serve and not necessarily wear the T-shirt that says Christ Church, because there's a sense, I think, in Mark, as well as in some of the other leaders here, to say, man, sometimes it's tempting just to self-promote and not just to promote the gospel. And, and I appreciate the sensitivity to that. Um, and, and that's not to say that it's wrong when someone else does it. I think what ha- has been said at times is, for me in my heart, this would be wrong if I were to do this. And so this tension of the heart for motivation is good for the disciples as they argue over who's the greatest. It's good for the Pharisees because they seem to be 
living their entire lives this way. So it really brings me back, and, and this the last kind of parallel text before we dive into ours, it really brings me back to, and, and again, this is the first year that I've really seen the parallels between the seven, or the eight Beatitudes and the seven woes of chapter 23. But the seven woes um, in chapter 23, Jesus says to the crowds, the scribes and the Pharisees, they sit on Moses' seat, and so do whatever, do and observe whatever they tell you, um, but not the works they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens to bear. They lay on people's shoulders. The burdens they are not willing to move with their fingers. They do all their deeds to be seen by other people. And that idea, again, of motivation. They do everything to be seen by people. The names that you call them and all of these things are all on the outside, but their heart is dead people's bones. Their heart is ultimately selfishness. Um, and and I'll be honest, this, that's convicting sometimes um, as a person who leads and teaches at, in even the church religious uh, organizations that we have. I have to be careful and, and ask the question, you know, am I doing this for Jesus or am I doing this for me? And, and those can get blurred. I, I mentioned that motivations are sometimes like my kids' Play-Doh that they've played with too often, um, where all the colors are mixed together and you can't ever get them back apart. Um, and, and yet Jesus needs to come in and say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get some of that selfishness back out of you. Have you ever read um, the book In His Steps by Bruce Marciano? Yes. Yeah, it's a good. It's one good. Of, one of the key things that came out of that with this chapter here mm-hmm. was what was how did Jesus talk? Yeah. In this chapter, because he said, Yeah. He said, Love your enemies. Yeah. And the Pharisees are sitting right over there. Well, how many, how many times have you ever heard this chapter preached with, yeah. woe to you, woe to mm-hmm. you, woe to you. Yeah. And it's probably, no, it's yeah. probably, guys. The way he did that was, and, and I loved that movie, and yeah. I loved his character. I remember when he taught, spoke at Ozark. I was a student when he came to Ozark. I don't know if you all were there. Were you there? Okay, good deal. Yeah, so I I would have been there as well. I would have been a student. Um, uh, But that scene is, that story as well as that scene is very impactful because he, he, the way I've heard others explain it is you can't preach about hell or judgment without a tear in your eye and have the heart of Jesus. And that's exactly how he approached that scene. But there was also the part of the scene where they're walking up the steps. Yeah. And one of the Pharisees stumbles. Yeah. Yeah. And he helps him up. Yep. Yeah. Because that's what Jesus would do. Yeah. So this so this for me has been interesting because all three of them we see Jesus do. Uh, we have actually, you know, when it comes to giving to the poor, we see Jesus throughout his ministry obviously give to the poor in various ways, sometimes uh, financially. In fact, it's assumed that when Judas leaves the upper room that he's going to give to the poor. So I'm assuming it was a common practice. In fact, you know, when Mary, of, we just mentioned this text on Sunday, when Mary of Bethany is anointing Jesus, why could this not have been sold and given to the poor? So it's a common, almsgiving apparently was a common part of how the disciples managed the money given to Jesus. Um, but we see other examples where he's talking about the widow's might and those types of things where Jesus lifts up. Or we see the rich young ruler where Jesus talks about um, giving. Um, and so I want to dive into this, each of the three of these, and then what we'll do, we'll turn the page and dive a little bit more in depth um, because Matthew does. 
to the Lord's Prayer. It's like, and, and I mentioned it week one, this is like the pinnacle of the, of the sermon, the Lord's Prayer is. But it's interesting, in these three, the, the prayer aspect gets a little bit more attention um, as, as we go through the three of them. So the first one, we've read the first verse, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to, you hear that motivation there, in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward. This becomes a major theme in our text, not only motivation, but also reward. No reward from your Father who is in, notice the phrase, in heaven. Our Father who art in heaven, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's a major theme for Jesus to say, God is watching over everything that happens on earth. Um, and you'll be rewarded by him or not. And so some people ask, what is the reward? Jesus doesn't answer that, but maybe he does in the Beatitudes. Eight times he says, for they shall see God, for they shall become sons of God, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And eight times he walks through rewards that we'll get. And we'll talk about treasure next time we get together in two weeks, because I've already told you, I think treasure is a little bit of a riddle when he says treasure, the people of earth who have their mind on earth think money. And when he says treasure, the people who are seeking the kingdom and his righteousness think people, because that's what God treasures. Um, and so that, that reward for us needs to have a kingdom heavenly perspective. And you'll hear, you will see that, that word throughout. Um, Thus, when you give to the needy, um, and I don't know if this historically happened or not. There's a lot of debate about this. Sound no trumpet before you. It seems a little bit over the top. I, if it's historical, we don't have any, any trace evidence of it. And maybe Jesus is just kind of poking some, and, and not only poking fun to demean, but just like, come on, y'all. Like, quit doing this over the top thing to show people how much you're giving and what you're doing. But the reality is the ancient world benefactors those who gave money for public temples or those who gave money to help the poor, they were often promoted in ways that were over the top. When we go to ancient inscriptions, we find inscriptions everywhere for people who were giving to temples and roads and all of these things. The benefactor-client nature of the ancient world was was common and was everywhere, even in the Jewish world. So... There's a part of me that goes, maybe they weren't literally sounding trumpets, but they might as well have been. And then there's a part of me that goes, I wouldn't put it past them. You know what I mean? I wouldn't put it past them. So, so we don't know on that for sure, but he does say, man, when you're given to the needy, you're announcing it for you. And, and then he uses this phrase, and we're familiar with it, hypocrites, as the hypocrites do, you know, the people who are putting on a face. Uh, putting on a fake act. And this word was always a negative word in the ancient world, not just in the Bible, but other places by philosophers and others as well. Um, As the hypocrites, notice where they are, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be praised by others. That still reminds me of Matthew 23 and other places where he says, they love to be greeted in the marketplace. They love to wear their clothes so that people recognize them. They love to be called rabbi or father. They love these kinds of praises by others. Some of the words here are interesting. Um, the word for like applause has the root of it to be the word for glory. So to applause someone is to give someone glory. That makes sense. Um, but going back to 516, so let your shine, light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father. 
what makes this so so harmful of a heart, and I, I'm just going to use the word evil, I think, is that it's robbing God of His glory and claiming it for ourselves. Look how righteous I am rather than how righteous God is and how good God is. And, and that, that's one of those things that will like sting you in your heart when you start thinking about it, that, that we can actually desire praise that only God, that only Jesus deserves for salvation. And, and I'm reminded oftentimes, like as a preacher, teacher, whatever it is, father to my kids, like I can't save them. I can point them to the one who can, but at the end of the day, I'm just a person who's pointing the direction and saying he's the guy, not me. So if they don't remember my name, it's okay. Um, I think I think I've told this story here on at the church. I can't remember if I've told it to you all, but um, I, I was at a cemetery in Kentucky. Have I told you this story? Mm-mm. So. I had a church history trip, Restoration Church history trip. is a bus trip for a class in seminary. We traveled all over Kentucky, Cincinnati, you know, Ohio, uh, several other places. A lot of graveyards and a lot of old churches, Cane Ridge Revival uh, place where some of the churches were, were started. We stopped at one Kentucky graveyard, and it's probably the oldest graveyard I've ever seen. But again, I'm from Colorado, so everything's fairly new there, to be honest. I mean, the oldest things we have are mines, gold mines, those types of things, lead mines. And, and when I was there, most of the gravestones were kind of a sand, they weren't sandstone, but they looked like they had been worn like sandstone. The names were gone. You could make out a few letters, maybe a date. Some of them were broken off at the base, looked like old man's teeth is what I kind of said at the time, you know, it kind of looked that way. And, uh, and yet, you know, all of those names, probably 100 or so gravestones, were overgrown and forgotten. You couldn't make out the names. And then there was one spire, giant headstone, white marble that was, I don't know, someone like Barton Stone or someone like that. There was a big church name in the Restoration Movement. And I remember in that moment asking myself, would I be okay if my name is like these over here so that Jesus' name is the only one that people see and can remember? And that was actually a weird gut check for me. You know, kind of one of those where you just like look at the scheme of life and you go, kind of like you all with grandkids, right? You talk about writing journals for your grandkids. What about their kids? Well, what if they don't know the journals, but that Jesus faith that you've given to your grandkids is passed on two generations later? They don't, if someone asks them, who's your great, great grandma? They're like, oh, I'd have to look that up on Ancestry.com, whatever that is in the future. But Jesus is remembered four generations down. There's a part of me that goes, man, I'd want to be remembered and yet, realistically, I know if they know Jesus, they know all they need to know, and someday it'll come back to me. And it, it reminds me, and it's a cheesy old song, and Ray Boltz has, you know, in some ways done some things that I think, you know, I don't know his whole story, but there used to be a song he wrote called Thank You, and it was about thank you for giving to the Lord, and someday there might be a line of people, well, that song really impacted my family and impacted yeah. me back in the day. And, and I hope, I assume, based on even this word reward and treasure, that we will have an opportunity to see our impact that we've had. And, and maybe it's like Abraham where like God says, hey, your generations are going to be like as numerous as stars, and he can't see it, right? He can see stars, and he can see sand, but he can't see the people. And yet, I think in heaven, he has the opportunity to go, this is what my faith family looks like. That's Hebrews 11 and 12. And I'm assuming that God will, that'll be part of our reward as well, is that we can go, Writing in these journals over and over again. And, and not that, you know, that's, is, that's a symbol of something even bigger, a faith that you all have invested in your kids and grandkids. Um, 
but that's a seed that gets planted that we don't ever get to see the full harvest of. And, and that's a big faith ask for me because sometimes it feels like I'm just grinding out it day by day, right, with a 12-year-old and a 9-year-old and a 5-year-old. And you go, am I making it? And I ask this question all the time, am I making any impact at all? And I ask the question as a preaching minister when our church wasn't growing, are we making any impact at all? It just seems like we're just grinding here day by day. Um, and so I'm, I'm thankful that this reward language is here. So come back to the come back to the text. Um, you know, instead of being praised by other, to be able to be praised by Jesus and let Him be remembered. And I, I love what Jesus says because He's fair. My kids sometimes want me to be fair. My son tonight actually asked me to be fair. Um, and and the reality is uh, kind of like Mark said in his sermon on Sunday um, when his dad gave him the five dollars and then gave him a five dollar bill uh, to to pay it back. Um, Jesus gives them their reward. Like, if you're living for the praise of men, that's what you'll get. You've got exactly what you're looking for. So if you're looking for people to glorify you or applaud you, you'll get it, and it'll be empty, and you'll feel the emptiness, and that's all you'll get. I'm going to be fair. I mean, it's almost like the Frank, kind of like the Frank father just telling you like it is. This is what you'll get. And I love that about the language here because it's not him being cruel or mean or anything. He's showing, it's actually kind of the, it, to me, the text that I want to put on top of this is the foolish builder and the wise builder because the person who builds their life on the sand is the person who lives for the applause of people because it's never enough. You, and, I, and I know that, man, I could preach a good sermon on a Sunday when I was really young and I'd have people go, man, that was great. What did I want to do next week? I wanted that applause of people again. It's, you, you actually, it's like a drug. You always actually have to have more. You have to have more approval by people. So if you live for that, it's never actually going to be enough. And I love that foolishness that is, we can kind of impose on this text. Um, so then he says, and this is maybe where we want to stop and have a, a little bit of a, a conversation. But when you do give to the needy, do not let your left hand, and again, I think he's speaking metaphorically, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. That's going to be a theme. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. So I don't know. What are your thoughts on some of the questions I asked at the beginning? Is there ever a time that a person could, in good conscience, with a good heart, um, let someone else know that, they are, that they're giving, that they're giving to the poor? What are, what are your thoughts on that? And I don't have a designed answer other than to have a discussion? Well, I would not ever having necessarily been asked that question. Mm -hmm. I I would say that there are are some times that yeah, to know what's been given or that that they're doing this is fine. Because I think it comes back to the motivation even of the individual. Am I doing it so that I'll get applause? Or am I doing it because I really want to see the kingdom advance yeah. in whatever that is, whether it's a church or CIY or the college or Corny yeah. or whatever. Yeah. And I think that that tension, again, is kind of that warning sign that's healthy for us. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think if, you know, if I'm reading this text personally, I'm going, I want it to be the norm that my giving is in secret. But even then, secret is one of those things where I go, well, Alan Stanley is that who does it here, right? So it doesn't count. Alan Stanley always knows what we give here, um, or if we don't give here. 
or you know Ozark Christian College. There's office manager there that knows what we give or don't give. Or if it's Water Gardens downtown, they know what we give or don't give. Um, so in that sense, you know this text to apply it strictly that no one ever knows would actually be very hard, especially today when the idea of transactions happening. You do have people who do this, obviously, who give anonymously um, and, and don't even won't, won't even claim it on their taxes. We'll take it to that level of extreme. Um, and and maybe there's good intent there, protection of their own heart. And I would almost go, and there might be a danger in some of that as well, to, to well, be the extreme of being self-righteous. And well, you can become legalistic even in that. Yeah. And that's, I think, maybe yeah. a different aspect of that tension that you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, for example, we... Um, when we were going to Park Plaza Christian Church, yeah, we were there doing something one That's one day. Forty-five years ago, <laughs> yeah, long, long time ago. And a guy came in. Two guys came in, and this one wanted to be baptized. Yeah. And the one that was going to baptize him, we said, you know, we've got some waders here that you can yeah. put on. He says, Oh no, I, I have to, I have to be wet with him. With him, yeah. You know, as if yeah. I'm in a <laughs> in a running creek, you know. Yeah. I have to get wet also. Okay. And so he was in the baptistry. Yeah. Wet. And you're like, that's fine, but there's like, an easier way to do this. Yeah. Well, but I've never seen that. Yeah. In the Bible. Yeah. You know, where. Yeah. You know, where the we person has. That, but that yeah. was his. You know, it's like, well, if if I don't do that, then. Yeah. It doesn't count. And there's almost like a magical side of it that the people are worried about, like God, like being mad at them that they didn't get it exactly right. And, and that's what makes me want to just come back to the heart of the text and go, Jesus is concerned about your heart. And come back to that over and over again. He's concerned about your heart. What is your motivation? Um, well, sometimes, too, I, I think other people mm-hmm. make you, they give you the, the reward that you're not even looking for. Yeah. And you've given, and you didn't expect it. But, yeah. for instance... Um, when you have given a large sum of money to an event or to yeah. s- an organization, they post your name of yeah. these are our big ser- top top these givers. Are our Absolutely, top givers. <laughs> yeah. CLI and has that in their magazine. That, yes. <laughs> and so does so does um, yeah. Life Choices. Yeah. That was a huge thing at this last banquet. Yeah. That they had these are our top supporters, and yeah. I'm looking at Dave and going, you know what? These are platinum sponsors. Yeah. Sponsors. And and that's and very in co- very much in common with the benefactor nature of the ancient world and, and, and how so that was I everywhere. I see that in our scriptures, yeah. and so I'm struggling with how is that yeah. working into our culture now, Yeah. and maybe the person didn't even want to be, but then yeah. on the other hand, some wanted to have their name posted because of their business. Yes, there was an advertisement as much as, which again, I go, okay, motivation, if, it's, if it is meant to be an act of devotion to God, that's one thing. If it's your business saying we're advertising and we're going to support this, and our, I, but that tension so is one that do, I think we should have. But our people, but our organizations and our people yeah. on earth are doing that, and I don't mm-hmm. believe that the people that gave yeah. intended to be, you mm-hmm. know, yeah. that way. So how did that work? How does this scripture work into, you know, because I've always kind of held back and not given yeah. more because I didn't want them yeah. to know I was given this yeah. sum or whatever, but at the same time, um, 
you have people who it is a sacrifice for them. I mean, yeah. I have known people that it was difficult for them to, yeah. to give yeah. anything when they come to these campaigns yeah. or to organizations. And so, yet they have given what they could. But and it, it and their not, name's not mentioned, but yeah. They, but they have, their hearts are so yeah. much. Yeah. And so, when it says this is done in secret, I find what you're saying is, yeah. you know, I, I tend to lean toward the secret, to be honest. I tend to lean toward the, and, and you know, those same, same kind of, again, I'm not going to say those organizations are wrong to post that. If I'm giving, um, I know my heart well enough to know that it is an easy temptation for me to want to be recognized for the things that I do that are things of the faith, because those are the circles I'm in. Those are the people, honestly, I care about their opinions more than anyone else. And so, yeah, so I, I agree with you. I have to guard my heart and sometimes make sure that my giving is either in secret or that it's, that it's at least guarded. You know, hey, that's, I'm probably not going to... There's gonna a lot of things we would like to give more to mm -hmm. or to give, yeah. but we have already committed to give to this organization yeah. to yeah. minister through. And yeah. so it's a battle for us to figure out yeah. how much... Because if we lumped it all yeah. together... We could give to one, and it would be a big yeah. But instead, we have all these that we're yeah. doing, and and yet when someone you respect, you know yeah. that they are giving to something, to someone, yeah, or an event or an organization, whichever it is, and you respect that person for their belief, yeah. and you know that they gave, then all of a sudden you go, okay, I can freely give to that because I feel comfortable. Yeah. So there's yeah. kind of a part of me that says, yeah. yes, I want to know that they've given because I feel good about what I, I give. I know, yeah, and that's part of what our capital campaign person said is that, you know, of course, when you all as leaders say how much you're willing to sacrifice and give, it's going to inspire other people like David and the temple and other places. You know, we find Moses and the people gathering things and bringing it together. So, so that tension is where I landed in this text, I landed in those texts, I landed in a few others to go... Um, well, even the widow who get you know who get there there is a dynamics where you can't always hide, you know right. you can't always hide your giving, um, but I better be guarding my heart, and that's ultimately what I'm you know where I'm going to come out of this text is going, I need to decide sometimes to give and say I want this gift to be given anonymously, and then other times for the church or whatever to say your giving can actually help inspire others if you're willing for us to do that. Now, that's not my priority, right? I'm not actually leading with the trumpet saying, hey, look at me, I'm giving. Someone else is saying, hey, they're giving. Kind of even the matching thing. Hey, if you give, they'll give. Some of those kinds of scenarios. You know, I don't want to create loopholes. But what I come down to is going, Jesus is talking about if you're doing this in order to be seen. And, and that's really the only thing I can control. I love what Paul does when he talks to the Corinthians. Over and over again, he uses the phrase good conscience or clear conscience. And Paul over and over again is accused of false motivations. And over and over again he goes, my motivation was pure. My conscience is clear. My conscience was, was, was good. And, and I go, That's, that faithfulness is actually the only thing I can determine. I can't determine how people are going to understand it, how they're going to see it, how they're going to respond to it. All I can go is, Jesus, here's my heart. I'm trying to give it to you. Uh, now, sometimes I'm like the father, you know, that, that cries out, I believe, help me in my own belief. You know, I, I want to have pure motivations, help me in my own pure motivations. Um, and, and I think this kind of a text can help that. But I, I agree with you both in this, the sense of going, the, 
sometimes the rigidity uh, can actually be stifling as well. Um, and so recognizing the tension between 5.16 and this uh, in 6.1 can actually be helpful. It can be freeing to go, oh, there is a time to let your good works be seen by others so that you're salt of the, salt of the earth, light of the world. And then there's another time to go, that's actually not giving glory to God, it's giving glory to me. Well, how many buildings on campus are named after somebody? Absolutely. I mean, I work in that that world where it's easy for... But I don't think that all of those people yeah. did it to get a building named after them. Yeah. The, the school was so grateful for what mm-hmm. Strong or Goodman or yes. whoever yeah. did for the school. Yeah. And they they chose to honor him yeah. or her maybe in in that situation and it wasn't because yeah. they were looking to Yeah. Okay, if I give enough Yeah. If if I do enough Yeah. <laughs> they'll name a building after me. Well and even and I'm thinking out loud right now, life processing, but Paul call Paul calls people by name who served or were generous or, you know, gave to the church in Jerusalem. And so you have some of that, the dynamic that plays out. Lydia. So some some people who come to this and want to this to be a very strict, it's like, no, 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 come back to the heart. And, and almost even the, you know, the plank in your eye, like, don't ask to remove someone else's plank. Oh, they put their name in that magazine until we come and remove our own, and then we can help each other out. But yeah. some, of, some of those things are helpful. Well, let's, let's skip the prayer part for just a minute. I know that's weird. We're going to come back to it. But I, I want to go, go to fasting just for a moment. Uh, verse 16, when you fast, do not look gloomy. I love that word in the translation. Um, do not look gloomy. What, what, transla- or what words? Sober. Sober, yeah. Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. They disfigure their faces. You can just picture this, can't you? They disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. They're putting on a show. They're hypocrites. So they're putting on the face of fasting. Um, and I, you know, I know this from even days where I'm not, um, where I've just skipped a meal or skipped a couple meals, not for religious reasons, just because I've either been in a hurry or maybe I'm doing a health thing. Um, it can, it can cause you to be groggy or feel not so great, but they, they're obviously doing this to be seen by other people. Um, and even the putting oil on your skin, some of those types of things would have been normal practices that that they may have even skipped in order to make this a little bit more of a dramatic moment. Um, And again, he says, they've received their reward. But he says, when you fast, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, uh, but by your Father who sees what is in secret, and your Father who sees what is in secret uh, will reward you. Just a couple words on fasting. Um, Jesus, actually, Matthew chapter 4, just got done fasting for 40 days. Um, Whether that was involuntary or voluntary, Depends on our theology, I guess, of the Trinity, because the Holy Spirit led him out there. And, uh, and I would argue, if it's the Holy Spirit's will, Jesus is in line with that will by the very nature of God. And, um, and so Jesus fasted. However, in Matthew 9, Jesus is going to have outsiders come and say, why don't your disciples fast? It's in chapter 9, verse 14. Why don't your disciples fast like John the Baptist's disciples fast and like the Pharisees fast? We could argue twice a week like Luke 18 did. Um, and Jesus is going to say, well, when the bridegroom's here, it's time to party. And then he has weird, these two weird parables about wineskins and about a patch. And those two parables have always dumbfounded me. And I, my best explanation of them really is this. There's an appropriate time to do something and an inappropriate time. And you don't, it's inappropriate to take something that hasn't been washed 
and patch something that has been washed because it's going to shrink. It doesn't make sense. And the same thing with the wineskins. These two things don't go together. What Jesus is saying, while I'm here, it's time to celebrate. It doesn't go together to fast, which gives us a hint maybe of what fasting's about. And, and then he says, but, the, but there'll be a time to fast. They'll, and so he insinuates, he assumes that the disciples will fast. In fact, the book of Acts, they do. Oftentimes they're fasting and, I don't know, Pentecost happens. Um, so, so fasting is something they did. As, as far as I've studied thus far, I've nailed, kind of narrowed down fasting to three motivations. And these might not be all-inclusive, so let's talk about it a little bit. Um, but the first one is this, an expression of dependence, an expression of dependence upon God. What I mean by that is this, when I go without food, I realize how frail I am. I, I have to have food. I, I get hungry. Uh, I'm not as independent as I'd like to be. I'm dependent upon God. So it expresses that I need God. And I would argue fasting expresses I need God more than I need food. It's a reminder that as much as we need food, if we don't have a day without food, do we have that same hunger for God? And that's, that's a, sometimes a good reminder. So, so again, I'd argue fasting is for us mm-hmm. to, to admit to ourselves, to say, man, I can go, if I go one day without bread or food of any kind, this is how I feel. But I can go a day without recognizing the presence of God. And maybe those two things shouldn't happen. And I think fasting actually, it causes us, and here's number two, it brings us into focus. So it causes us to focus on God. Because fasting is a, has such a phys, physical implication on our body, it causes us to focus in on why we're doing what we're doing and therefore focus on the presence of God and our need for God. Um, the third word I want to put in is the word repentance. In the Old Testament, fasting was, was an act of repentance. Now, there's other reasons to fast. Sometimes it's manipulating gods and all kinds of other reasons to fast. But these seem to be three. I don't know if it's the three, but three of the attributes of how fasting is a gift to us, um, like prayer, uh, to help bring us into focus or closer to uh, recognizing our need for God. Um, so, you know, the question here is, um, even did Jesus assume we will fast? And he does, you know, say, but when you fast, so he does have an assumption that we will. Um, does that mean if you don't, that you're not? No, that's not. The assumption is these are the ways that people express their faith in the ancient world. These are the ways that were common. So here's the ways that they are going to, but they could also manipulate them and use them for selfish reasons. There's, you know, people have asked the question, well, does that mean I have to fast? No, there's people who can't fast. People with diabetes, all kinds of reasons why they can't. Does that mean you that it... fast from something, though. Some people, yes, exactly. So even Lent and some of those types of things, you know, do we need to be like Pharisees and fast twice a week? No. Would it be beneficial? Maybe, if our heart's right. If we're not doing it to be seen by others. If we're doing it as an expression of devotion, dependence, a desire to focus in on God, it could be helpful. Again, I would go, the Pharisees are doing it on certain days. It's like fasting on Sunday. Oh, I'm sorry, we can't go out to eat with you all after church today. I fast every Sunday. I mean, you could just picture how the Pharisees would live that out in this kind of a, this kind of a setting, um, especially in a more intimate, small church, 
family, community kind of setting, you could see how that would be very up on the surface. Everyone would know, oh, that guy does that every single week, and it would be easy to kind of build yourself up that way. <laughs> Questions, thoughts about fasting? Kind of a brief. Well, as far as telling people, though, that you're fasting. <laughs> yeah, there, there's a side where sometimes that... Well, there was, there was a time that we, we were fasting... And yeah. uh, and I would have business people come in and sit yeah. and take out deep. Yeah. Yep. And, and there's times and where I you would, have to be able to say. And I would go with them, but yeah. I says, you know, I'm, I'm not eating today. I'm I'm fasting. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and, and again, I didn't make a big deal about it. Yes. They they were godly people also, so yeah. you know, it was they it's respected kinda like, oh, that. Okay. And, yeah. Know, and it wasn't like. What are, you, what are you doing that for? Yeah, and that's far from the, and, and that's the reason why I asked the tension question at the beginning. That's yeah. far from the disfiguring your face, complaining to everyone you see, oh, look at what I'm giving up. Yeah. Um, it is, again, it comes back to that heart question like the giving one to go, man, there's times I need to tell my wife, there's a reason I'm not going to eat dinner tonight. <laughs> you don't need to prepare supper. Um, and in those kinds of settings, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I think as a leader in the church, as leaders in the church, um, there's times where we go, I just want to be in tune with what God wants to say today. I don't know, from experiences from fasting, what, I mean, are these three good outlines? Is there anything you'd add to that? I never thought about it as being dependence. <clears throat> yeah. Because I felt like it was, um, for me when I'm fasting, it's more about me, the focus. Yeah, the focus the attribute. Um I never thought about being dependent upon God for my food and for my yeah. life because I was focusing upon what He wanted for my life. Yeah, yeah. So, so, um, so it's a desire to go, God. You, here's a window for you to speak to me. I'm going to listen right. intentionally right now. Yeah, I, for for me, the two of those go together because it is going, God. I can't do this without you. I don't know what to do without you. Mm-hmm. Um, the dependence comes in three different parts of, of this as I frame it up. And, I, and I'm again, these aren't words from the Bible. These are just me going, how is fasting framed up? One is, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Even that metaphor, hunger and thirst there, is kind of an interesting one. Um, but in the Lord's Prayer especially, give us this day our daily bread. Daily bread is an echo of the Exodus and manna in the desert. And that very that daily bread was very much a symbol of dependence upon God. They had to have God to survive in that moment. And we just came out of Matthew chapter 4 where Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days. Turn these stones into bread. So you have a lot of that, like bread mixed with fasting, mixed with dependence upon God that comes into this text. I think... Um, you know, those things added together is, is part of the, re- even just the human experience of we are not, um, you know, independent in the sense of like, I can do this on my own. We ultimately have needs and, and fasting or, you know, whether it's fasting from something or fasting from all foods, remind us that um, we are weak. We are weak vessels. We will die at some point. And that's what fasting kind of reminds me of sometimes, like, man, it doesn't take very long, and I feel like I'm going to die. And, and it's amazing, because it does remind us of how weak of a vessel we are without God's power.
Now, when you when you move away from the the religious aspect of yeah. fasting, I mean, sometimes you'll yeah. fast because you want to yeah. cleanse your body. Absolutely, from a health well, standpoint. Yeah, and so and that's one of those two where I go. Yeah, that's completely removed from the whole heart, self-glory. But then I go, man, but can you actually like even use health or other things as self-glory? Yeah, you can use a lot of things as self-glory. Satan's pretty good at getting us to do that. But but yes, I'm I'm of that. Even, you know, Whole30 and keto and some of those kinds of things are a form of dietary fast that's not related to, you know, religion in a sense. There's a part of me that goes, yeah, but all stewardship is godly stewardship. And so is there a sense of spiritual, I mean, you need to do it because you're being faithful to what God's given you as a body and a steward over your life and those things. So I don't want to separate them, but I don't think they're necessarily the same thing. So I think it's a good observation. Well, let's let's dive in briefly to prayer. It's 7.50. I I had these two sections uh, to where we would touch prayer and then we would leave the Lord's Prayer in depth for another session. It was going to be next week. We'll push it back and have it the week after next. Um, and again, um, for those listening on the tape especially, uh, we'll send out an email reminder that we're not going to meet next week, uh, but we'll meet, I think it's the 27th of February. Is that next Wednesday? Um, but two things about the prayer thing. So verse 5 there in chapter 6. Um, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. There the hypocrites come up again three times. They love to stand. It reminds me again that Luke 18 passage. Um, Jewish posture of prayer. Typically, standing, looking up, hands extended. First uh, Timothy chapter 2 Men are told not to, uh, rather than anger and, and disputing and quarreling, to lift up holy hands in prayer. It is an act of submission. It's an act of either surrender or adoration, but it, it very much is an act of submission um, in that sense. Uh, obviously, Western culture, we tend to bow our, our heads and close our eyes or even fold our hands, and that's fine. All of those are symbolic of something that we want, postures. Uh, Isaac Shade and Elijah Daly would tell us postures are an expression of what is inside. So if it's on our knees, prost, you know, prostrate down on the ground, prostrate down on the ground. Um, I said prostrate, prostrate down on the ground. It's an act of submission. Now, the Old Testament, that's true too. They have that posture of prayer. Um, and so the Jewish postures of prayer were these different things. But here we have, they love to stand and pray, notice in a public setting, in the synagogues, on the street corners, that they may be seen by others. The bigger the public setting, the better. Now, again, we have to question, is it okay to pray in church? Yes. I mean, Jesus, Jesus shows us public prayers all the way throughout the New Testament. It comes back to the heart. We see public prayers of various people, the disciples and other people as well. Um, so it's not that it's public. It's they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and the street courts, uh, the street corners to be seen, that they may be seen by others. Um, that truly, I tell you, he says, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room. I was doing a study today on this word, uh, about two o'clock today. And, and R.T. France is a commentator. He says that this word for room is actually likely the inner storage room of a typical Palestinian home. It was typically the only room in the Palestinian home that someone could lock because it's where you'd put your food and your cooking gear and those types of things. I found that intriguing because this is the only room that you could go and you can like lock yourself, you know, lock yourself in and actually be 
alone. And, and I think that does... goes. And Locke would be on the outside, I guess, though, too, huh? wouldn't it be? But, but it is that idea, I think, what he was arguing, just that idea of you can get away. You're, you're away from everyone else. There's, you know, it's not a windowed room, that kind of a thing. It's not public prayer. You do have examples of people publicly praying on purpose. Daniel's a good example, right? Publicly prayed three times in order to be seen. Now, I think it comes back to 516 so that they might glorify God because the, the temptation there was to not pray publicly so that you were safe, Daniel. No, no, no. I'm going to go about my business the, the normal way. So I find, I find that intriguing, that, that tension, again, of heart that is there. What is the heart behind what we're doing? Um, and again, your father who sees what is secret will reward you. Verse 7 adds something. This will, this will be kind of where we leave off, and we'll leave the actual Lord's Prayer for next time. When you pray, he, fi- he adds on top of the hypocrites this phrase, do not heap up empty phrases. Um, the King James Version used to have a different way of phrasing this. I want to come back to that. Um, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Um, do not be like them. In fact, I love when Jesus says this, this is the countercultural nature of the sermon. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. I wrote this phrase down, prayer reveals what I believe about God. My, my prayers and how I pray reveal what I believe about God. And that's scary sometimes. Um, is God just a genie to grant my wishes? Um, or like the Gentiles pray, is God, do I really believe God listens that he's good, that he cares or that he'll... That, that he, he's concerned with even my petty, you know, my petty little requests. Um, for those of you listening, I'm putting that in parentheses or in quotation marks. Um, air quotes. Yeah, air quotes. That's what that's called. Yeah. So, so the what how I pray reveals the nature of what I believe about God. Is he distant, like the you know deists would believe, um, who is not engaged in everyday life? Is he? Um, you know, is he like the Gentiles where you have to get his attention or for him to care about you? So you have to add all these phrases and just keep... Mer- so I don't think that he's arguing... Um, sometimes the King James translation, I can't remember what that, that translation said, the empty phrases. Um, and, and I can try to look that up on my phone after we're done. But it's been understood, like, don't pray repetitive prayers. In other words, some people have taken it to be don't pray uh, written prayers. And I don't, that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying these words that you just speak babble over and over again in order to try to get God's attention. God's a father. He's good. He is there to listen to us. Um, King James Version says vain repetition. Vain repetition. Yeah, that's the, that's the translation. So that repetition word is one of those words that can be at times un- misunderstood. Um, in the sense of like, don't go, I don't want to ask God something twice because it's vain repetition. No, 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 like God's a good God. You can come to him and ask him twice, but you don't have to, you don't have to do it just to nag him and get his attention. Um, or are they doing it because if they, if they say it often enough, he'll... Well, they'll manipulate him is what the Gentiles are trying to do. They, they, would try, they would use incantations, magical sacrifices, those kinds of things to manipulate the gods to do whatever they wanted the gods to do. It's because they didn't believe the gods cared about them, loved them, they had to get their attention 
and be so dramatic and drastic about it that the gods would go, okay, I'll give in. And, and that's, that was the mindset of many of the ancient religions. And you even see that with the prophets of Baal, right? They're going to cut themselves. They're going to dance around and, like, is Baal going to the bathroom? Is he sleeping? What's the deal? Elijah prays. God answers. Um, and that's literally what Elijah says. Is he going to the bathroom? Is he relieving him? What's the deal? Um, and, and so, you know, this, this line, though, has been something that has hung with me as I evaluate my own prayers, which really leads us into the Lord's Prayer we'll talk about next time. Um, you know, do my prayers reveal something about what I believe about God or even what I reveal about my own heart? I told you at the beginning today I have a prayer journal, and sometimes I can read back through that prayer journal. Last year is a good example. And sometimes recognize I've been kind of selfish or myopic. I've been small thinking. I've been praying about myself. I've been praying about my own stress or my own worries and fears. And sometimes our prayers reveal something about our own hearts. That's not bad. In fact, that's helpful. I can look and I read through my journal at the end of the year and go, what have I learned? And last year I went, there's times I've been pretty selfish or, or at least not as, not as faithful in the sense of believing God is big enough as I, as I should. And I think, as we talk about next time, there's a reason why the prayer starts out, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. And then it gets to, help me with my daily bread. Because unless we have a big view of God, our daily bread will seem like a mountain that we can't climb. And, and that daily bread might actually be daily bread. Some days it is. If you're starving, daily bread's the most important thing in the history of the world. Um, but sometimes that daily bread is whatever the next thing is that's coming up. And, and so what I want to do, we'll take, you know, take half of the time next time to just walk through that, that prayer and, and look at it and go, what are some things we can learn about the heart of God and the heart of ourselves as we dive into that? So that's where we'll be. Friends, thank you. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.